This is my higher ed. Welcome to Mind Your Higher Ed. Today, I'm interviewing an early career researcher, Rachel Lamb. She's already written a nice guest post for my other website, the university blog for students. But today, as part of the Learning Always Network on my HE, I'm speaking with her about postgrad life, about what it's like to be a researcher, and indeed, what it's like to juggle the time between doing that research and teaching undergraduates. I hope you enjoy today's show and also full show notes can be found over at learningalways.co.uk. If there's anyone else that you would like to hear on the show, let me know. Drop me a line. I'm on Twitter at University Boy. And just before the interview, I wanted to let you know that I've now got the various podcasting feeds up and running. So if you're currently following the site through the website itself, learningalways.co.uk, or maybe you found this in a different way. You can get this in your favorite podcasting apps. You can go through iTunes, you can go through Stitcher, you can go through TuneIn Radio. I've got the links up there now, so be sure to follow me wherever you get your audio. And now without further ado, here is today's interview on Mind Your Higher Ed. On this episode of Mind Your Higher Ed, I'm joined by an early career researcher, Yet she spent 15 years in corporate communications before returning to higher ed. Her website, Joined Up Writing, helps students to excel in their academic work. But her own research is on workplace creativity and the social factors that encourage or inhibit it. I'm really happy to welcome on today's My HE, Rachel Lamb. Hello, thank you, Martin, and thank you for um, inviting me to talk today. Fantastic to have you on here. As I was just saying, you being an early career researcher, I don't know enough about what that really means. Is there a specific term for for what it means to be an early career researcher? Um, I think that the term early career researcher usually applies to either doctoral students or postdoctoral researchers um, in the years just after they've gained their PhD. But what I find interesting is that I'm described as an early career researcher although I began my PhD at the age of 42. So I've already spent a good proportion of my career in a different uh, environment. Indeed. And and so you've come back into higher education after spending some time in in corporate communications. Uh, Have you seen a great deal of difference? Do do you like the the way that higher education feels in in this day and age? Or have have you got some pangs to be back in that corporate comms world? I think it, certainly I wanted to do the PhD for a long while and there was um, a set of circumstances that sort of led me to go back into higher education and I'm really enjoying it. It's certainly have, having been in a corporate environment, it's very nice to have a lengthy project to be involved with. But the flip side of that is keeping myself motivated through the different stages of the PhD because it can get quite lonely at times. I see. That's that's a good point. When it comes to the, the academic side of, of that work, then I guess a lot of it is very much you doing things on your own. Uh, how do you tackle that? Do you have uh, other colleagues that, that you're able to spend time with? Do you have any opportunity to work with others within the academic work you're doing? 
Um, I think because I have a teaching scholarship, so I teach for about 20% of my time. Um, so I'm already sort of situated within a team uh, within the business school. So that's helped enormously because I have a lot of sort of casual conversations with colleagues about different aspects of my research and they help inform my thinking um, alongside the fact that I've got two very experienced and helpful supervisors that have been really incredibly generous with their time and their uh, knowledge and experience. And, and what, what do you say their uh, supervisory uh, role really entails? If we go really back to basics here, because uh, part of what Mind Your Higher Ed is all about is to try and demystify what some of this means and to help people who are maybe at the very beginnings of uh, being within the higher ed sector or indeed are just interested in what the, what that's about. So you're saying about having supervisors. What is it that, that they do to help you to get along on your journey? I think that relationship with supervisors is such a critical part of the PhD and I've heard from a lot of people who have either found their the supervision of their PhD to be really beneficial or to be more problematic but certainly in my case um, my supervisors have really in the early stages helped to influence the choice of topic um, and talk through where various gaps in the literature might be uh, so that I was able to follow those up but also to talk about in terms of my future career progression where I might wish to pay more attention in my PhD in order to have publications and papers later on. I see and so what you're working on at the moment is workplace creativity and you're saying about gaps in the literature and that type of thing is there a lot of work at the moment that you found within that or are you finding huge numbers of gaps that you're needing to look into? I think that um, previously a lot of the research into creativity has focused on the sort of idea generation stage of creativity and there's been less focus on how those ideas are selected and which ones are going to be implemented within an organisation. Um, but also from a practitioner point of view there's as well as there being an increase in the research on the academic side, increasingly organisations want to be more innovative. They want to increase the amount of creativity um, and they want to sort of remove any barriers in the workplace. So um, there's actually a lot of scope there, both on the academic side, but also to support practitioners in understanding what's happening. That's a good point, actually. So so when it comes to things like enterprise, business, that type of thing, that there, there is a lot of interest there, you're saying. And do you see that there is good opportunity for collaboration? I think so. Potentially, there is sort of further research that I could do in terms of partnering with the particular organisation that I'm doing my fieldwork at. But I think it's got a much broader application, particularly as organisations are trying to innovate and, um, you know, particularly larger organisations. That's interesting. So the work that you're doing there is, you, you were just saying you've got 20% of your time that you're having with teaching. Mm. And so, so your academic research is roughly 80% of the time, is it? It is. It is. I mean, it depends very much on the point of the academic year, because certainly my teaching load is more significant at certain times and less in others. Right. I mean, if it was during the term time, then roughly how much would you say you would spend in the week with regards to teaching lectures, that kind of thing? Oh, I think it just depends on week to week. 
One thing I have encountered, though, as a PhD student, as I often my deadlines, um, particularly in my first year of my PhD, often my deadlines fell at the same time as my students' deadlines. Oh. I was trying to complete my assignments as they were wanting my time and asking questions about their assignments and that my marking often came at the time when I was sort of waiting my results as well. That sounds like it could be uh, one of those difficult situations where you're having to juggle so many different things. Uh, were there any uh, any tips that you can give in terms of juggling time when there are all these different things going on? I think a lot of my experience in corporate life has really prepared me for having to sort of manage my time and juggling different activities. Um, I think particularly being able to remain focused on a particular task. I, I'm think that multitasking is very overrated as a concept and I tend to focus on one activity at a time um, so that's been enormously helpful. Yeah I completely agree with you on the whole multitasking thing I ignore that entirely when you can have that focus that deep focus on the work that you're doing it makes such a difference you can kind of get lost in it which I know you could then just spend forever but at the same time if you're focused on too many things and you've got all these tabs open in browsers online for instance and all the social networks that you can be a part of then you know that can be just as overwhelming do you do you limit yourself time spent online and within the social networks when you're when you're doing the work then I think that I tend to sort of focus on a particular type of task. So I try and designate a day as a day when I'm writing up or a day when I'm transcribing or a day when I'm interviewing because I find that different activities require a sort of different set of skills and it's not as productive to keep swapping between different activities like that. Um, having said that, the diary doesn't always work out like that. So I do have days when I seem to be pulled from lots of different things at the same uh, uh, during the day i can well imagine and one of the other things that you're doing is uh, your website joined up writing and i'm guessing that that adds further to the uh, to the load of the different types of work you've got but it, it's definitely a worthwhile thing because you're helping students to excel in their academic work you're helping them look into some of these issues that i guess you see coming up again and again and again uh, through the teaching that you're doing I'm just wondering, first of all, how far could universities go in really helping to prepare students for when they first turn up as a fresher uh, to really get that different feel of how academic study can be? Um, I think it's an interesting question because certainly students at university, they're expecting to be taught by subject matter experts in whatever course that they're taking. And I certainly see that a lot of lecturers and module conveners go to great lengths to explain um, to students how to approach their assignments um, and, you know, for example, providing previous papers and such like. But I think academic standards do jump suddenly. It's certainly something that I've reflected on my experience as an undergraduate. And I think that the focus on independent study plus the degree of flexibility that students find themselves with, it's not surprising that some people find that transition quite difficult. Yeah. When it comes to the work that you're doing for Joined Up Writing, would you say that the advice you're giving now on the site would be something that maybe you wish you had when you were an undergraduate? Or do you feel like some of the advice is quite different today to, to how it used to be? 
I think that a lot of it is the advice. It, it, it's sort of an approach that I've developed through some of the difficulties that I faced as an undergraduate. And it's really by seeing the students that I'm teaching encountering the same difficulties that led me to create the website and the, the blog in the first place. I think there are some things that are different now than when I was an undergraduate. Um, I mean, certainly there are a lot more resources online. So, you know, when I was first a student in the 1990s, I would have to physically go to the library and take out hard copies of journals or books, um, whereas now students can access that online. Having said that, I think that um, certainly with the internet, um, students have to think a lot more carefully about what is a reliable um, source of information and what's appropriate to include in an essay. And I think that's changed, certainly. But also the amount of distractions online. And I think, you know, when I was a student, there wasn't things like Facebook or Twitter or there weren't all these opportunities to get pulled into social media. So I think some things have changed Whereas other things like being able to write a persuasive argument or how do you tackle your reading list um, are very much the same. I can, I can go with that very much from the experience I've had too. One of the things that seems to stand out for me is about using the library. That you're, you're absolutely right that so much can be found online now, but nothing really beats being able to see all these different tomes and, and maybe losing yourself in a different way, finding stuff that you wouldn't even have thought to have searched for. Because when you're searching for stuff, you pretty much, you know what you're looking for in a way. And when you go to the library, you might chance upon something that you, you wouldn't have simply found had you typed in a search in Google, for instance. Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting point that you make, because often it's the books that are sort of adjacent to the book that you're looking for or because a particular book isn't um, available you know there's the opportunity to sort of cast around and look for something else Um, and it's often those finds that make um, assignments stand out or be different from for example students that have stuck to the reading list but I think certainly now there's so many competing sources of information and one of the things that I really try to explain to students is the investment that the university goes to in order to provide access to journals and access to um, academic books and they can't quote sources for example uh, like wikipedia which they would use in everyday life or an organization's website in the same way as they can rely upon academic research that has been tested and is unbiased um, for example there's one thing that I'd say to students, if they really must look at Wikipedia, then one of the things that I suggest is at least having getting the basic understanding for yourself mm. and not referring to it, but then looking at things like the references that they use. Sometimes it refers to books or it refers to different websites, which you could then find uh, extra things for purposes of maybe bibliography and mm. so on, that it can be the beginning of a rabbit hole but at the same time, really not to rely on it. It's just that I feel that there is still this tendency to want to look at places like Wikipedia, especially as Google, for instance, will give that so much traction as at the top of its search list. So I I think that if there needs to be some sort of use, uh, then at least get the basics and maybe look at what their references within the article are. Um, do, Do you think that is 
useful in any way or is that something that maybe I should just stop bothering with altogether? No, I think that's this, this very similar to um, I encourage students that it, it's often helpful because a lot of academic terminology can be quite difficult. Um, and certainly, I mean, even I found when I returned to do the PhD that because I was looking at papers in a different way to I had a, as an undergraduate and when I did my MBA, sometimes if you're reading a sentence and there's so many words in it that you have to look up, it's very difficult then to form a sense of what that paragraph is is telling you. So one of the things that I encourage students to do is to sort of go through and almost like create a mini dictionary um, and uh, so that they can try and put the, the, the question or the research into everyday language that they would understand. And I certainly see that Wik- looking at Wikipedia and those types of sources has a role to play in that. And often they can provide a, a quite clear and reliable summary of a particular theory or a particular topic, um, which then will allow the student to sort of get to grips with some of the more difficult academic material. I really like your idea of having like a mini dictionary. I, I guess in a way it's like learning things through flashcards. You're not sure about something, so you have, have that there, it's like a ready reference. So uh, that's, that's, a, that's a gold piece of advice. I like that very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when it comes to helping the students that you're teaching, do you feel like your experience now that you're dealing with them or, uh, on the flip side, uh, has surprised you anyway that uh, maybe they've helped you on your own uh, learning journey as it were I think it surprises me how often I'm asked the same questions after lectures and in seminars um, particularly questions about the process of studying or the process of writing um, and it's uh, to give you an example it's the, the students that say well can I quote the lecture slides can I say it reference lecture two for example And so it surprised me how many times there are particular topics that students are are stuck on. Um, And similarly, I see certain errors repeated again and again in assignments that I mark. Um, And that was really the driver behind setting up my website, because I thought if I could help students, if I could understand their problems better and I could provide a resource that would help them uh, with the things that they were struggling with, then it would be a useful tool and resource for them but in the process I've actually found that it's increased my knowledge and it's sort of solidified my expertise in the area because as I'm spending time sort of on picking the problem that the student's having and helping to answer that it also influences my own research and writing and how I approach it and approach my study too. And because you're studying workplace creativity, do you feel like you're being more creative uh, as part of the process as well and that the students can also be creative? It's it's almost like a a different type of workplace, so to speak. It is. It is. Um, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm being more creative or not as a result of it. I'm certainly understanding a lot more about creativity and I think that is the joy of studying for a PhD. It's the, the joy of understanding a relatively narrow topic, but in great depth. So the more I'm learning about it, the more fascinated I am um, with, with the subject. But also, I think that as my study progresses, I, I then come across a new perspective and it causes me to try and reevaluate all the things that I've considered so far. So I think there's that constant reinvention and refreshing of my research as I'm reading new things and being influenced by new research coming out. 
I mean, that's exciting in itself that you're there looking at creativity. And I'm sure that everyone has their take on what on earth that means. I'd be really interested to find out how you perhaps did feel you, you felt that it meant and and then maybe how that's changed over time. I think certainly my my view of creativity as a researcher of it, it's certainly changed from how I would have maybe defined it. Um, as a sort of lay person or, or sort of member of the general public. I mean, certainly before I undertook my PhD, I would have considered creativity to be quite specific activity, either producing something novel or artistic, and quite a narrow definition of it. Um, whereas right. now I, I can see creativity in all sorts of different um, situations, different problems different solutions um, so it certainly changed my opinion of what creativity is um, and in particular my research depends on the definition the academic definition of creativity is something that's novel and appropriate and recognized and it's that uh, recognition that I've particularly focused on within my research that it's actually the being recognised as being creative, being recognised as a creative idea or a creative person um, that in effect labels that activity as creative. Right. So so novel and recognised at the same time. So maybe you're adding something or you're putting your own voice to it. Uh, but at the same time, you need some re- level of recognition before you can you know, stamp it, I suppose, as, as creative. Is it something along those lines? Yeah. So it's trying to balance something that's novel enough to be surprising and for people to take notice, but also appropriate and feasible at actually solving the problem. But I think what's particularly interested about the recognition part of the definition is that it allows, if we start to look at what is recognised and what is not recognised as creative, it's at that point that all the different social factors and social capital that people have and particular biases that come into play, um, certainly in what's recognised as being creative and what's not. You know, I, I'm interested now. I, I want to do some of this and, and look into it further. That, that's part of part of the joy of it. And so, would you would you consider things uh, within higher education to be creative, as as in that they're novel and recognised as as being this continued celebration almost of of the novel and of finding out new things, of, of developing our knowledge? Uh, would would that all be a big part and parcel of creativity? Uh, I'm going to have to have a think about that one. Um, (laughs) It's quite a big question. I think certainly academia is very much based on finding gaps in knowledge and identifying what is new. And it's certainly been quite a steep learning curve for me, understanding where that boundary is between what's already known and what is still unknown. Um, And certainly I, I think what helped me as a researcher was being told by other people that actually I don't think we'll probably make enough of explaining to new PhD students just how difficult that task is being right on the cusp of creating new knowledge and I think that's where sometimes this feeling of sort of loneliness or um, you know that this is incredibly difficult work comes in. Well, yeah. And I, I was going to ask you about that, the, the kind of support that you would need, uh, especially early on with, within that, uh, you know, doing PhD and, and early career, that kind of thing. 
whether you've got two pronged approach, I, I suppose you were just saying about the loneliness and you're also saying about needing to understand how to work out where those gaps are and, and how to really probe into the specific areas that are necessary. What kind of support do you feel universities are already doing a really good job of uh, and, and what things maybe uh, could they improve in the approach or, or add to so as to really help get people on board? I think I've been enormously blessed by, you know, being at Nottingham because I've certainly had fantastic support, especially coming in as a more mature student. And certainly there was a number of talk courses that we undertook in our first year of the PhD that sort of helped us to get to grips with identifying the gap in the literature, the philosophy um, of science and where our particular uh, research fitted fitted within that. And so there's certainly a lot of support to explain the process and and also some of the stages that people go through. So very early on, we we had somebody come and talk about the imposter syndrome, the, the feeling that somehow that everybody thought you were clever, but actually the work you're undertaking was really, really difficult and the sort of doubts that you might have that whether you're uh, sort of able to undertake it and just explain how natural that is and how because we are working on the edge of new knowledge, how difficult that can be at times. I think where it, it is maybe more difficult is when you get to very subject specific matters you know, certainly within the um, business school that I'm situated in, I can talk to lots of colleagues about the process of the PhD and where I'm at in that process. But the the actual scholars in my field are sort of dotted about all over the world. Um, and so the actual conversation you can have can only go to a certain depth with the people who you actually see on a day-to-day basis. And that goes for when other colleagues explain to me about their research. I can only understand it up to a point. And I suppose that part partially where you've got that loneliness coming in, I guess, is that you perhaps have people around. You want to be able to talk about this work that you're doing. And I'm sure for you, it's incredibly exciting because, you know, this I found something out new. And, and you know, this is this is something that I'm really taking all my time to explore. And yet, as you say, you, you want to have the conversations, but maybe you can't. Yeah, I think it's that sense that the only people who would be as excited about it as me is probably my supervisors and somebody in New Zealand and a couple of people in Scandinavia. It's that sort of sense. Um, But certainly, you know, all of the PhD students um, and my colleagues, you can be excited for somebody who's discovered something, even if you don't quite understand the the significance of it. Yeah, I suppose the support that you're getting uh, on maybe a one-to-one basis is is part of where you've been blessed that you've managed to get the help when you specifically need it so maybe you aren't looking so much for very general support but more for that uh, almost relationship support in terms of you're getting through this you can do this you're not an imposter and and really giving you that boost I suppose is that uh, is that something that's helped you yes definitely I mean understanding the the sort of the highs and the lows of the PhD process certainly helps um, when you're going through it yourself to know that you're not alone and I think to a certain extent that's what I've tried to recreate with my website for undergraduates um, to try and help them to feel that actually there are a lot of people who come across the same issue there's a lot of people that struggle with the same thing and that it's not something that's specific to them 
um, and equally the PhD, it's not something that's specific to me. You know, it's it's sort of generally well understood that it can be quite a difficult process. You're probably onto something very, very much with the website with Joined Up Writing, because I think that sometimes we forget. I think students maybe don't even know. And I think that academics and staff would not necessarily remember that it's not just as you turn up on campus that you are all in the same boat, that you've all got the same kind of issues, but that, you know, generally as you go along, when when you're uh, in the second year, when you're in your final year, you've got your dissertation to do, that can be brand new. All of these new events, they don't stop. So I suppose it's really key to remembering that every step of the way, not just in the first few months of being a fresher, but every step of the way through that degree, students do need to uh, to be supported and they need to understand that they're not alone. I guess similar to how, how you're being helped with the support you're getting through doing PhD and, and through going, uh, going through the postgraduate routes as well, that none of us are alone. We are all going through very similar things and uh, it's well worth reiterating that. Uh, is that is that something that you're finding your students are feeling helped by and, and buoyed up with as well as you're, as you're helping them through the website and through your own one-to-one help with them? Yes, uh, I think it's enormously helpful to understand that you're not the only person encountering a problem um, because it's very easy to look around at people Um, and see what's on the outside and then assume that everybody else knows what they're doing, that everybody else has got it right and that it's only you that doesn't understand what you're supposed to be doing. And so I think there's um, a lot of encouragement that students can take from understanding that actually this is a common problem or, you know, I've come across this a a number of times. I recently did um, a survey of students Um, And it was surprising how certain issues came out. And they were things, for example, around the different terminology that we use in academia um, and the process, not understanding quite how to research an essay or how to construct a, a thesis statement. So I think just knowing that other people said the same things as they did can be enormously empowering. It gets me thinking about maybe some of the student facing work that I do that I may be missing a trick because a lot of the focus I have is on saying, saying students, you know, make the most of your time at university and beyond. You can move yourself forward. And I tend perhaps to talk a lot about how lots of students, they think this. So I almost, I almost give it a cursory nod of, look, you're probably in the same boat as lots of other students. Let's kind of get you out of that. And of course, it's because I'm talking to one student, but but that I'm talking to everyone that I possibly can. But maybe it's it's about acknowledging a bit harder that you that, that we are all in the same boat at one point or another, that it's possible to get over that hurdle. And uh, it sounds like you're doing a lot of that. And so so kudos to that. I, I would, I'm kind of moving on from, from it and, and just thinking about the collaborative or competitive nature of higher ed, because there seems to be this pushing and pulling. And I always find that there is a lot more of a collaborative nature within higher ed. But you also hear lots of stories about how it can be kind of daunting because of this feeling alone. How how do you feel about the academic world? Does it feel more competitive or does it feel more collaborative? 
I imagine that that depends really on the culture of the organisation itself, because certainly I've worked in with some large organisations in business where they have been more competitive and some where they've been more collaborative. Um, and it's often to do with how people are awarded bonuses or remunerated. Um, and certainly my experience while I've been doing my PhD is the environment that I'm in is very positive, very supportive. Everybody that I work with, both on the teaching side, but also on the PhD side, they've given me the benefit of their experience and been very generous with their time. Um, so I think the actual em- environment itself that you're working in is really collaborative, certainly in the university that I'm in. I think that what has surprised me more generally is the limited number of roles available. So for early career researchers to progress and sort of start their career, um, the, there's quite a lot of competition and demand for those sorts of roles is quite high. So I think that has surprised me. And I think in particular, the competition around getting papers accepted in journals. And so as somebody um, early on in my career as an academic, to see established academics sometimes taking long periods of time to get papers published, that's something that concerns me um, as a less experienced researcher. And it just, you know, I think that ele- that because it's such a critical part of your CV, getting papers published, then knowing that there's such a low uh, percentage of papers that are accepted does make it quite competitive in that respect. Right. So there, there are challenges in certain elements that are competitive, but, but in the main, there is a, a fair amount of support and collaboration. And I, I, yes, you're absolutely right that it will very much depend on on where you are and so on. And it, it's good to know that you're finding that your surroundings at Nottingham are, are really positive. That's that's good to hear. And the way that I would think about going back to your work on workplace creativity mm-hmm. is is to is to think that would it be helpful to have it one way or the other, competitive or collaborative, or, or could you see creativity coming out of uh, of both types of scenario? I think there's certainly research to support both of those um, approaches in terms of the different factors that can um, sort of spur people on into being creative. Um, That can either be because it's a very supportive environment where people are given time to be creative and where it's very much valued. But equally, there is research to support the position that when you know, the phrase is necessity is the mother of invention. And I sometimes think that that definitely difficult circumstances can cause people to come up with innovative solutions. I, I guess maybe it also has something to do with the the mindset approach that, that you give to it. Maybe even thinking about things like uh, Carol Dweck and, and having the, the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset, that when, when you face that adversity, that you would be able with that growth mindset to push yourself forward and, and to say, you know what, I'm going to make something of this rather than just say, I give up. I've, I've had enough of the world. This is just too much. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's actually quite a funny story because when I first came back to do the PhD in the teaching, um, I used the example with my students of Apollo 13 and how in circumstances like that, people had to be creative um, and innovative. And what I found amusing is that 
I hadn't really taken into consideration at that point just how young my students were um, and how few of them had heard of Apollo 13. And indeed, the film itself was 25 years old. So um, (laughs) it was quite, I had to then spend time explaining the situation. So it was quite funny, really. I have a feeling it was Apollo 13 that my wife's uh, stepfather uh, was actually in the control room playing quite a big part in in all that was going on. And uh, in, in the film, it was uh, my wife's uh, mum was was basically saying uh, how, look, there's the seat. That was the seat he was in. That was he was doing this. And <laughs> so I kind of got this got this feeling. I'm pretty sure that was Apollo 13, but it's um, it's good. You're right. Yeah. Creativity in, in all sorts of unusual places. And, and sometimes when it's that important, you know, matters of life and death and so on. So, yeah, the the age of students, I find it so funny that I'm, you know, I'm now in my late 30s and, and it's like, why am I banging on to students about how to deal with their time at university and make the most of it? It's like, I should just be quiet now and talk about other things. But it's part of the reason why these audio shows have also come about and and being able to speak with, with people like yourself who are exploring all these uh, other situations within higher ed and and just how much wonder there is uh, within it are you are you excited about uh, higher education in general and and whole you know hashtag love he yes definitely um (laughs) certainly certainly if i i mean i'm somebody who's very much an advocate of lifelong learning i i can relate to what you say because certainly if i look back at my time uh doing my undergraduate degree it's not just the that higher education has changed, but actually I've changed massively as a person. Um, and so I can only look back at it um, through the eyes of somebody who's got a lot more experience. Um, and so it, it's quite interesting to put myself into the shoes of my students because I know certainly when I was 18 and at university, I thought that I had a lot of experience and I had a lot of knowledge. And now looking back at it, I realise how much I've gained in the meantime. And certainly if I think where in 25 years time, where I might be, um, looking back on now, it's just this constant process of sort of learning and growing as a person. But also, I mean, the higher education has changed quite significantly um, from when I was an undergraduate. Yeah, and it continues to change as well. I mean, who knows what's going to be around the corner next? It's it's just so so many things that have the potential to overwhelm because if you're busy doing academic work, it's possible that you may not even be focused on on some of the uh, strange goings on or the policy machinations. And at the same time, it might be that it directly hits you uh, where it where it hurts. There's, there's so many uh, balls that need to be juggled within the sector that uh, it can be quite difficult. Uh, just just wondering, got a, a couple more uh, questions i suppose the penultimate one would be regarding that uh, are you noticing in the time so far that you've spent working on the phd and so on now that you're back within higher education that you've noticed anything that will suddenly stop you in your tracks or, or any of these policy changes coming in that uh, you suddenly feel that maybe the university as a whole has, has got a different feel to it I can't say that there's anything in particular that sort of made me reflect on that. Um, I think certainly being in a business school, there are maybe different challenges to being in other areas of the university, such as the humanities. 
And so while I've not seen anything that's affected me personally, I have seen things happening in the wider um, university that maybe will sort of have um, an impact later on. Um, Maybe it's also down to the positivity of the university and indeed the the staff within it. Just thinking about when I previously spoke to Paul Greatrix, uh, the registrar at Nottingham, and he was saying about all these different considerations that you've got and need to be able to really come together as a community almost to allow that day-to-day running can can go smoothly but you still have to be looking not just not just five years into the future but 50 years and 100 years and that kind of thing mm-hmm. so uh, I suppose in a way it's necessary that not much looks like it's changing on a day-to-day basis so uh, maybe fingers crossed no matter what's thrown at <laughs> us and at the sector and so on we'd be able to weather those storms. And I think I think it's not just sort of policies within higher education, it's things in the wider environment. And I think we've seen this year that there's been a number of events that were perhaps maybe not unforeseen, but have had implications that um, universities have needed to deal with, which we perhaps um, you know, will see the impact of further down the line. Uh, that, that fits very well into... The last question that, that I've got, which is really about what thoughts you've got in the way an academic career can advance. You're, you're here as an early career researcher and just wondering what the joys are that, that you've got so far, the things that you look forward to as well, but also some of the obstacles that uh, that you've faced that you have then been able, able to overcome. Um, I think, I mean, certainly for me, I've maybe not got a mainstream perspective on developing an academic career because I feel like I've had quite a, a lot of career before coming back into academia um, yeah. but I, I certainly think that it's interesting um, for example with the teaching excellence framework that there is um, a focus on teaching as being um, a way of advancing through your academic career as well as through the research sort of focus as well and I think that that's that for me, my understanding of it, that presents some quite interesting opportunities in the future. Well, it's good to hear and uh, the very best of luck to you as well. It's, it's been excellent to talk with you about the, the way that you're finding the, uh, the, the movements within higher education now as, as, as things have changed over the years and also what it is to be an early career researcher because I didn't know enough about that side of things. All I've seen is that the, the terms can be quite, uh, quite difficult, that it doesn't always mean the same thing to one person as it might do another. It could be quite broad in nature. So it, it's good to be able to get a bit of uh, your experience as well. Uh, where can people uh, find you online and uh, where, where would you uh, point people toward if they want to hear more from you, Rachel? Um, you can find me online. My website is joinedupwriting.online um, and I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at joineduponline and also I've got a new Facebook group that I've just recently set up for students called Study Right Now um, so that you can find that by uh, going to the bit.ly link just study right now and you can that, that's really a group that I've set up so that students can talk with each other um, and sort of help dispel some of those difficulties and those, that sort of sense that they're on their own. 
That's brilliant. And I will put links to all of these into the show notes so that uh, people can can get there. No need to uh, worry about writing things down. It'll all be available on the site. Well, once again, Rachel, thank you ever so much for joining us and, and helping to give a bit more of, a, of an idea of things that are going on within HE and uh, maybe helping demystify some of the things that we just don't necessarily always know but with higher ed being such a beast that it is. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. And I think it's just one final thing. I would just encourage if there, if there are people who have maybe begun their career in a different area and are considering whether going back into academia is something that's right for them, you know, whether that's doing an MBA or a master's degree or even a PhD, I would just encourage people that you're never too old. You're never too old to go back and continue with your studying. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us today on Mind Your Higher Ed, Rachel Lamb. Thanks for listening to My HE. Mind Your Higher Ed is part of the Learning Always Network, and you can find show notes and more over at learningalways.co.uk. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at University Boy. Music on the show is by From the Dust and is licensed under Creative Commons. I've been Martin Hughes. Let's keep bridging gaps in higher education.